For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, verse 1 through 23, the fall of mankind. <clears throat> now, there are a few things that we probably should consider. You know, why does this even matter? I think, first of all, when you compare creation, which we studied in Genesis chapter 1, you'll notice that the common refrain God uses is that it, he created it and it was good. For example, in Genesis 1.10, we're told that God saw that it was good. In verse 12, that he saw that it was good. In verse 17, that he saw that it was good. Verse 21, that he saw that it was good. Verse 25, that he saw that it was good. And in verse, 30, in verse 31, he saw that all that he had made and beyond, that it was very good. Okay? And so... God created, he looked at his creation, the finished product, and he deemed it to be very good. And yet when you compare the Genesis account with what we see today, you see something completely different. You see in our world today, there is uh, fear of terrorism, mass shootings, economic catastrophe, natural disaster. And this picture that God paints of this great world that He created seems totally different than the world that we live in. And you know, when you talk to somebody who would consider themselves an atheist, they would say, well, what we're seeing here is essentially what's good or what is. And yet, they sense that what they're saying is at odds with uh, just that gut feeling they have, which tells them that the world that we live in is really abnormal. You know, something must have happened. And really, without the fall, you run into a number of problems. You know, it suggests that what we see is normal. That, you know, what is, is what ought to be. And that's very troubling. You know, an atheist will give you an elaborate argument for why what you see in the world is the way it should be. That human beings essentially don't have free will because if our mind is essentially dictated or governed by cause and effect, that, you know, we're simply responding to external stimuli. And that whatever's going on in our brain is actually just a chemical reaction, then in what sense do we really choose? In what sense do we actually have a will? And so this whole concept of morality, what's right and wrong, gets thrown out the window. And what people say is that what you see when, when people say this is right or wrong, they're really talking about moral or cultural mores you know, things that are put in place in culture to kind of keep people from killing each other and causing the human race to become extinct. Secondly, you know, we lay really the responsibility on God for any problems we have on earth if uh, the fall never happened. And yet, most of us sense, just I guess on a subjective level, that 
that some God exists, and yet he's also, or it is also, a benevolent or good God. And really, another implication would be that if God created the world, then he actually authored evil. It's undeniable when you look into the world that there's evil in the world. Things are not the way they ought to be. And if we're going to suggest that actually God created this world, then he's also responsible for the atrocities, the hatred, the racism, all of these moral injustices that we have to live with on a daily basis in our world. Well, luckily, the Bible actually gives us an alternative explanation in Genesis chapter 3. We begin in verse 1. We're told that the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now, I think people in our culture sort of raise eyebrows when they hear this, that a serpent was speaking. And the Bible actually identifies this serpent as God's enemy. We read later on in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that the, the author John actually refers to the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one who's actually deceiving the entire world. So the Bible actually tells us that this serpent was probably being used as a tool or a vehicle for Satan to try to tempt the first humans. Now, <clears throat> obviously, most people in our culture would deny the existence of Satan. I mean... Most people in our culture would admit that maybe there's a God out there. I think that in a recent survey, like 80% of Americans would say that they believe in some sort of higher being or God. And yet, the majority of people and a large number of Christians would say that they do not believe in Satan. And yet, it seems a little bit odd that you would, you know, cross the threshold into the supernatural and say, well, I'm willing to admit that maybe there is a almighty, powerful being like God out there in the universe and yet deny the existence of possibly a malevolent being wreaking havoc and causing all the evil that we see in the world. And yet, in the biblical narrative, he plays a key role in explaining the introduction of evil in the world. We read that one day he asked the woman, did God really say? It's interesting that his first volley was actually in the form of a question. And notice that he asks, did God really say? He's raising questions about what God said to the first man when he instructed him not to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And really, I think, the way to explain this would be that in this spiritual realm, battles are won and lost on the ground of spiritual truth and falsehood. Satan knows that if he can start to shake our confidence in what God said, or at least confuse us about what he said, that we're really on a shaky foundation. And that once he can persuade us that God actually didn't say this, or maybe twist what God says, taking it out of context, that we're more vulnerable to temptation, to his lies. Unlike us, Satan doesn't doubt the power of God's word. 
He understands how much power is contained in what God says. And that's why he takes aim at trying to twist what God says. Now notice the content of his question. You must not eat the fruit from any of these trees in the garden. Did God really say that? Now, remember the context there in Genesis chapter 2. What Satan says here is an approximation of what God said, but slightly different. Let's compare this with Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17, where God instructs the original man, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat this fruit, you will surely die. So what's the difference? Well, the serpent, Satan, tells them, tells them or the woman, that you shouldn't eat eat from any of the trees a little bit different you know god says you can eat from any one of the trees that are fruit bearing but this one right here the tree that i have sort of sanctioned as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which represents man's choice to rebel against god indicating that they truly have free will he said that right there i don't want you to touch i don't want you to eat from that satan goes a little bit further and says Did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Why would Satan subtly twist God's word? I think, first of all, he's trying to portray God as overly restrictive. You know, God is always trying to hold you down. You know, he tells you how much he loves you and how much he cares about you how he wants to give you good things. He gives you all of these instincts like this sexual drive that you have and then he tells you you can't use it. You know, there are all these natural plants that we can use to have interesting experiences. And God says, you can't use that for those experiences. So is God really a good God? Or maybe he's just playing sort of a game with us. Maybe he just likes to watch as he gives us all of these drives, these instincts, and then tells us don't do anything with those. You know, he really sought to drive a wedge of distrust between the first humans and God. That's what Satan wants to do. Is he aims to try to create alienation between us and God. And so what he's doing here is he's raising questions about God's character. Can God really be trusted? Doesn't he just want to control you? He's just using you. You know, he probably anticipated that Eve would correct his misquotation, but he was taking early shots at God's character, hoping that this implication about God's character would linger that it would stick, even though he probably knew that she would correct him and say, no, no, I don't think God said that. You know, one of the things that we read about in the Bible is that Satan is actually a magnificent being. He's not co-equal with God. God actually created him. But he stands as one of the greatest creations God has ever made. And he outmatches us in intellect. He's incredibly powerful. He's incredibly insightful. And so he knows that by trying to shake our confidence in what God says, 
will really put us in a vulnerable position. Well, we read in verse 2 and 3, of course, the woman says, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. You're exaggerating, she says. It's only the fruit from the tree in the one in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. And if you do, you will die. Now, <clears throat> she replies with something that's a little bit closer to what God actually said. You must not eat it. She got that part right. She nailed that. But she sort of got the second part wrong. You must not even touch it. Perhaps the, the accusation, the implication that Satan was trying to communicate through his question had stuck. That God, maybe God is restrictive. That's possible. Well, that's speculation, but we know that Eve wasn't around when God gave Adam this instruction. She hadn't even been created at this point. And so, you know, perhaps what Adam did in this case was he was like, look, it's essential that you not eat from this tree. And you know what? Just in case, don't even touch it. Okay? Just, just don't even get close. Maybe he's the one who added that addition for her safety. And really what she did was what many believers throughout history have done with God's word is that in their good intention to try to protect people from sin and from ruining their lives, they often will add different restrictions that God never actually speaks to or says. You see this all the time, especially in the American church, where, for example, in the Ameri many American churches, you'll hear pastors teach that Christians should, should never drink alcohol. Now, they probably have good intentions in doing this. They realize when they look at people's families who uh, have an alcoholic in it, how, how damaging alcoholism to that family. Or when they look at somebody who is, you know, addicted to alcohol, seeing their lives destroyed, they reason to themselves, okay, if alcohol is destroying so many people's lives, why don't we just tell people that they shouldn't do it at all? Maybe that's the best solution. Or we notice that every time our people engage with a non-Christian world, there's always a tendency for them to start to buy into their values or fall into sin with these people. And so maybe what we should do is we should tell people that they shouldn't hang out with these evil non-Christian people and stay away. What we'll do is we'll create our own little culture and we'll hang out with each other and sing songs that nobody likes or understands. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. And yet, even well-intentioned choices can produce unintentional results. But anyway, the point is that... Um, you know, when you think about well-intentioned choices, they can produce unintentional results. You know, you think about saying, okay, what we need to do is we just basically need to tell people that they can't drink to safeguard them from alcoholism. And yet, the negative result that may come from that is you have non-Christian people who show up, maybe interested in investigating Christianity, but they enjoy drinking alcohol. They don't have a problem with alcoholism. But they look at the Christians that they're hanging out with and they see that none of them drink and there's sort of this unspoken rule that you shouldn't drink if you're a Christian. 
And they think to themselves, well, that's going to be a major barrier. I like drinking. I like, I like having fun. And so now I have to make a calculation. Do I, do I really want to become a Christian and look like that? That would be really unfortunate, especially since God never said anything about that. That's a real problem. It could have actually prevent people from coming to God. It may present yet another hoop that they feel like they need to jump through in order to, to forge a relationship with God. And so going beyond what God says can actually have some negative results. Well, in verse 4, the serpent actually gets bold. He, he goes from asking a query to then outright contradiction. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. And so he must have seen weakness. He must have seen that her trust in God, that there was a fracture uh, in it, and that he would strike at this point. Verse 5, God knows that your eyes will be open as, as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, both knowing good and evil. You know, really, when you look at what Satan is saying here, you've got to kind of read between the lines. I think, first of all, it implies that God couches his self-serving motives and restrictions that he supposedly gives for our good. You know, God really is just trying to keep you in the dark. He doesn't want you to see the truth. And so he's, he's telling you not to eat from this tree, knowing that once you eat from it, you'll experience enlightenment. That you'll actually be like him, able to judge for yourself. Not only the course of your own life, but what is good and evil based on your own experience. So you don't have to look to God to tell you that anymore. You could do that for yourself. And so Satan is casting God as this tyrant, this autocrat. Somebody who's just trying to suppress us and hold us down. You know, it really suggests, too, that rebelling against God offers happiness and fulfillment. It's often the lie that we, we buy into. I'm suffering trying to follow God. Or, you know, the only thing that's going to make me happy is to, to go out and get high. You know, the only thing that's going to make me happy is to just live my life around the pursuit of career advancement and success and just center my life on that. And yet, <clears throat> we see that uh, in our own lives and in the lives of people that we know who've given their lives over to these things, that it actually ends in unhappiness, destroyed relationships, lack of fulfillment. Derek Kidner really, I think, frames this well when he says, the tempter pits his bare assertion against the word of God. Presenting divine love as envy, service as servility, and suicidal plunge as a leap into life. And so he entices the woman that really this is the best thing that you can do for your life. This is really what's going to make you happy, not what God says. Well, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So... Something subtle happened here. There was a shift. At this point, she believed in what he had to say. Now, it's interesting. It's interesting 
that, you know, the woman probably saw the tree numerous times. She probably saw it on a daily basis, for all we know. And so what made the tree that much more enticing? You know, we're told that she saw the tree, that it was beautiful, that the fruit looked delicious. Well, the answer would be that she wanted wisdom from it. She, she desired it. Once she had that thought implanted into her mind that God was trying to hold her back from the life that she really should have, and that that life would actually make her happy, that created this desire for the fruit that she didn't have before. And so, really, when you look at the three things that the woman saw in the fruit, it's interesting because Satan actually continues to use this tactic of what the New Testament calls the world system in order to entice people or lure them away from God. Look at what John says in 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16 when he describes this. He says, Don't love this world or the things that it offers, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see, and a pride in our achievements and possessions. He later indicates in 1 John 5.19 that really the architect of this world system is Satan. He's the one who's created it and has used it to try to entice humans throughout our history. Now, notice the parallels. You know, she noticed, first of all, that the tree was beautiful. And this corresponds with the craving for everything that we see. You might call this materialism. It's the desire to possess beautiful objects, money and possessions. You know, in some cases, for us, it's actually possessing people. You know, we try to find somebody, a guy who's incredibly attractive so that we can get affirmation from our peers. You know, some, some guys seek after the most attractive woman so that, you know, his, his friends will say, man, your, your girlfriend's so hot. And they view that as an extension of their own ego and, and create a sense of value and identity from it. And so this craving for everything we see is a desire to possess. Then you have what we see here in verse 6, that it, the fruit looked delicious. And this would correspond to the craving for physical pleasure, sensuality, you know, you might have your run-of-the-mill sexual experience, drug experience. You know, that might include things like partying. And so a life filled with sensuality where you center your life around having pleasurable experiences. Now, some of you might be saying to yourself, well, <clears throat> I don't do those sorts of things. I don't like smoke crack. You know, I... I don't solicit prostitutes. Okay. Well, maybe you're the type of person, though, who likes comfort. You center your life around comfort. You try to buy things that are going to make you feel comfortable. You aspire to have a life where you can live comfortably. That's a form of this craving for physical pleasure. You know, for some of us, it may take the form of uh, hedonism. Where, you know, it's all about having that awesome meal or having the best wine 
or liquor or drinking only the best craft beer. We live for that, right? You know, we're not eating Burger King or Wendy's. You know, we only eat seasonal organic, none of that processed stuff. I mean, come on. And so it's all about the dining experience. It's all about, you know, pleasing our palate. For some of us, it's about world travel. It's about going and having an exciting experience or an adventure. And so really, there's a wide variety of ways that we could live our lives or center our lives around physical pleasure. Finally, we're told that she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. And this would correspond with the pride and achievements and possessions. Or as other translations put it or render it, the boastful pride of life. Seeking to gain accolades or achievements, getting that prestigious degree so that we can say, you know, I'm, I'm an accomplished person. People will admire us. You know, for some of us, it may actually take the form of moral fortitude where we actually feel a sense of self-righteousness that we don't do these things that these other people do over here, and so we turn our nose up at them. That is the boastful pride of life. Well, when you look at all these things, there's really nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with having a, a nice glass of wine with a, with a good meal. You know, God says that he created sexuality for us to enjoy within a specific context. He wants us to enjoy it to its maximum degree. And yet, what we're seeing here with the world system is that Satan is trying to persuade us to take good things and make them ultimate things. To take things that God gave to us as gifts and to then elevate that to make them the things that we center our lives on, which really is a, a shaky foundation to live your life on. And so really, when you look at it, it's interesting to look at Jesus, that he actually faced the same line of temptation. You know, we see in Hebrews 4, verse 15, that the author of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have, have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he was without sin. In Luke chapter 4, we read about this encounter that Satan has with Jesus, where Jesus is out in the wilderness, and on three occasions, Satan says, you know, I, I can tell that you're hungry because you've been fasting for, for many days now. Why don't you turn to this stone right here and make it a, a loaf of bread? And what does Jesus do? He responds, for it is written. He doesn't reason with Satan. Instead, he turns directly to the word of God. On another occasion, he takes Jesus to the top of the temple. And he says, throw yourself down and allow the angels to come and rescue you. And Jesus, what does he do? Does he reason with Satan? No. He says, for it is written. Every single time Satan launches an accusation or a temptation, Jesus immediately replies with what God says. And unlike Adam... Jesus was successful in withstanding uh, Satan's temptation. You know, so this really points to the fact that spiritual warfare isn't a power encounter. It's not about trying to, you know, 
demonstrate that, that we're more powerful than Satan. It's really... So it's not a power encounter. It's actually a truth encounter. You know, the realm of... Uh, the spiritual realm is, is really dictated by truth. And so Satan knows that if, if he can create a fissure in our confidence in what God says, that at that point, he finds an opening that ultimately can lead us into temptation. Verse 6, So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So it's interesting that Adam was actually with her. It's not clear whether or not some time had elapsed between when Satan was tempting Eve and when she actually took some of the fruit. If he was then the question that I think that raises is, what was he doing the entire time? He's just sitting there, you know, just kind of uh, twiddling his thumbs. Uh, honey, I guess you can handle this. Uh, being a weak male, didn't say anything, right? Um, or sometime later, she ate some of the fruit and he was with her. Either way, he knew what God said. He had a direct encounter with God over this. And yet, it seems like he didn't say anything to prevent her from doing this. And he was complicit and joined in with her. You know, at that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame in their nakedness. You know, one of the things that Satan promised was that their eyes would be open. And to an extent, this actually happened. But... As Derek Kidner puts it, it was a grotesque anticlimax to the dream of enlightenment. She thought that this was going to open up her mind and that she would be like God, that this would be glorious. And yet it was just the opposite. Really, this represents the first effect of the fall. And there are three of them, which is psychological alienation. You know, this sense that we feel shame or guilt. All of us carry that around with us. And that's exactly where this started. We can trace the roots of guilt and shame that we feel all the way back to this event right here. Now, <laughs> it's sort of humorous and altogether pathetic that they sew together fig leaves to cover themselves. I mean... What did they do? They just like kind of tied some branches together, kind of hung it over their jennies. I'm sure they had tons of wall, uh, wardrobe malfunctions. And yet, you know, even though we look at this and we sort of laugh at it today, I mean, their foolish attempt at trying to cover their shame is really something that we see today. Where, you know, a lot of us, we pretend like we're really happy and gregarious whenever we're in a social setting, and yet we go home and we're totally depressed. You know, we act like we're really confident and assertive, and yet we're deeply insecure. In many ways, we try to hide the shame and the guilt that, that really eats away at us. And all this started thousands of years ago. Well, in the cool evening, breezes were blowing, and the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking around in the garden. 
So they hid from the Lord among the trees. We're told that they hid. And again, this leads us to the second area of uh, alienation, which is theological, theological alienation. They hid from the Lord. You know, it's kind of foolish that they went and hid. I mean, like God wouldn't know where they were. He's omniscient. And yet, you know, really we've been hiding all this time. We've been running away from God because of our alienation and our fear from Him. You know, in verse 9, the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? I think it's interesting. He says, where are you? You know, he didn't try to drive them out of hiding. He tried to draw them out from their hiding. And that's the way that God often deals with us is he tries to draw us out whenever we're caught up in sin. It indicates the kind of grace and, and love that he wants to show us. He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree who, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Again, God was fully aware that the man and the woman had eaten the fruit, and yet he, he phrases this as a question. Again, I think it points to the fact that God was giving them a chance to confess. You see this happen really throughout the Old and New Testament. You know, in the case of, of David, he gave David an opportunity to confess about Bathsheba. He had many opportunities out of that. You know, you think about Ananias and Sapphira. They had opportunities to, to flee that situation and to come clean with what happened. God does this with us. He's patient with us, even when we fall. The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit to eat, and then I ate it. So this leads us to second area, sociological alienation. Uh, I guess it's our third, where he starts to blame the woman. You know, the woman you gave me, she's the one who did this to me. You know, so he engages in classic blame shifting. I mean, she, she practically chewed it for me. What was I supposed to do? I just swallowed. You know, it's her fault. And if you notice something subtle in what he says, he says, it was the woman that you gave me. You gave me her. You know, really, he was pointing to the fact that it was God's fault. That if he didn't place this woman in his life, he would have never done these things. And, you know, we, we come up with all types of justifications just like that. That really mirror what Adam is doing here. You know, if I didn't have this, this upbringing, I wouldn't be acting like this. I wouldn't have this problem. You know, if I didn't have the parents that I had, I wouldn't be doing the things that I, that I do now. What else am I supposed to do? That's the example that I have. And yet underlying that, what are we suggesting? We're suggesting, God, you put me in this situation. You allowed me to live through that, and so you are the one responsible. Or maybe sometimes we blame the circumstance and say, well, you know, if I wasn't in this place, in this situation, 
under these conditions of duress. And I mean, I would have never done that. We still do this all, all the time where we, we make justifications. Well, <clears throat> the Lord asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate. Well, then the Lord God said to the servant, because you've done this, you are cursed among all the other animals, domestic and wild, and you will crawl in your be- belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Now, a point of explanation here. God isn't saying that at this point, serpents were like walking, okay? He didn't like chop their legs off and say, okay, you're cursed now and you're going to have to slither for the rest of your, your existence. He was essentially saying that the serpent crawling on its belly was symbolic of the curse. Not that he was saying it would be a new existence for him. And so, you know, you see examples of this, for, for instance, in Isaiah 65, verse 25, where Isaiah uses the imagery, the metaphor of the wolf eating nearby a lamb. Or, for example, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 11, where God says, I put a rainbow in the sky as a, a symbol of our covenant. Now, he didn't create rainbows at that moment. He was simply saying it's taking on a new significance. And so in the same way, the serpent crawling on its belly was symbolic of God's curse. He says, and I'll cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike at your heel and you will strike at his. Again, a reference really of what Jesus would eventually do. That God would send his own son, Jesus, through the human race and to eventually gain victory over the evil one. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in the pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control, control your husband, but then he will rule over you. And so he points out that one of the curses that we experience is really uh, something that we've seen throughout history where men have dominated women, mistreated them. Again, it's another feature of the fall. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you'll, you'll have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. So this represents the last area uh, where the fall affected us, which is ecological alienation, where you know, we live in a world where we are subject to natural catastrophes, earthquakes, tornadoes, Tsunamis, wildfires that destroy people's homes, kill people. Not only that, prior to the fall, humans were working in concert with nature to produce fruit from the land. And now we work against it because God has taken away his hedge of protection from man. And then he says, for you were made from dust and then from, to dust you will return. And so he indicates that all humans from this point on will not only experience spiritual death, but they'll also experience physical death, which is really a grotesque picture of what God originally intended. 
You know, you hear people say, man, that was beautiful going to that funeral. I personally never felt that way. Where I've been to a funeral and just thought, that was just so beautiful. You know, if anything, I'm feeling grief and loss, pain. Something inside of me tells me that this is unnatural. Well, and then the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Some commentators see significance in this, that God called on Adam and Eve to go and and kill some animals and take the skins and fashion into clothes. And that this represents eventually the sacrifice that Jesus would make and that his sacrifice would cover us in our shame. It's possible. But um, either way, I think that it shows that, that Eve and Adam's instinct to cover themselves in their shame was something that's real. And then finally, the Lord banished them from the Garden of Eden. And so there you have the story of the fall. Now, let's do a little comparison with the remaining time we have. Before the fall and after the fall, I think, first of all, you know, before the fall, there was benevolent rulership where God said, I want you to, to rule over the land and subdue it. Afterwards, we see that there's selfish domination where people take advantage of the land, destroy the land. Beforehand, there's creative accomplishment where God said, I want you to work and that you're going to gain fulfillment from it. Afterwards, there's drudgery and really people forming a shaky basis for their identity by living for success and living for their work. Beforehand, there was free moral agency, and afterwards, it's substantially lost. You know, you think about extreme examples where where people are hopelessly addicted to heroin. Do they, without any sort of intervention, have the possibility to choose against that? In the same way, our minds have been distorted to such an extent that we cannot even choose for God. Beforehand... Adam and Eve were relational. They were in harmony with one another. Afterwards, they couldn't relate. And they felt this sense of loneliness even though they were together. And we still live, live with that today. Beforehand, there was intellectual creativity. Afterwards, our feudal minds have been darkened, twisted. And that we actually use our creativity to block God from entering into our lives. Beforehand, there was sex, unity, and diversity within marriage. Afterwards, there was sexual exploitation where people view each other as simple objects of pleasure. Beforehand, it was shameless, uninhibited, and free. People were frolicking around naked. It was awesome. (laughs) And afterwards, humans were ashamed, tied up in themselves, and afraid of God. So let's draw some applications. I think, uh, first of all, If you have a faulty understanding of the fall, you won't see your need for God. You know, if if everything is the way it ought to be, then what's the point of Christ? What's the point of Him dying for us? You're not going to see your need for God. Secondly, you may fool yourself into believing you can earn God's acceptance. If after all, we are not under the influence of a fallen human nature, then essentially, we can be good enough. And I think many people think that they're good enough to earn their way to God, and yet the Bible 
directly contradicts that and says that there's no way for us to come to God based on our good works. Only through Jesus Christ. Also, with a faulty understanding of the fall, you're going to suffer faulty discernment. You know, if you don't understand the fallen nature of humans, you are going to misread many situations and many people throughout your lifetime. You're going to have an overly positive view of people. You're going to be overly trusting even when people have fallen into sin. Now, with a proper understanding of the fall, you can look to the second Adam to redeem you. The New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, where Paul says, also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus came and undid the damage that the first man caused. We're told in Romans 15, verse 18 and 19, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Jesus came to undo the damage that Adam did. And, you know, if you're here tonight and you don't know God personally, maybe you feel like he's very distant. The take home for you, it's very simple. You are at odds with God. All of us start from that position. And yet God, in his love, seeks to draw us out from hiding. He pursues us. And ultimately, he sent his own son, Jesus, to die so that we can be forgiven and to be brought back into a relationship with him. But it requires us turning to him in faith and asking for the gift that he freely offers through Christ. And finally, you can rely on God to give you significant victory over areas of sin in your life if you have a proper understanding of the fall. And you'll be conscious of the spiritual war in which you're engaged. All right. Yeah, Lord, uh, this uh, teaching reminds me of uh, what G.K. Chesterton said, which is 3,000 years of human history has provided us with the empirical evidence to... Uh, have confidence in the, in the doctrine of the fall. And, um, you know, I just look at human history and even my own experience, and it's undeniable that we're living in a world that is uh, messed up. It's broken. And uh, we pray that we can turn to your written word to help guide us toward understanding about what actually happened and also uh, to guide us toward your solution as well that you offer through Christ. And we thank you that you have a plan of redemption, that you want to undo all the damage that um, you know, we've caused here on earth and that uh, you're merciful enough to uh, provide that solution. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.